Welcome back to Understanding VC. I am your host Rob. Today my guest is Amra Nag. Amra is a co-founder and general partner at Accelerating Asia, a VC fund and a startup accelerator that invests in pre-series A startups. Prior to founding Accelerating Asia, she spearheaded high-impact pro- partnerships and programs, including Project Inspire, the award-winning United Nations Global Social Entrepreneurship Program, and was a key contributor to Mural3D's startup selections, including their investment in Shopify. Now let's talk. Hi, Amra. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I was curious about your last name. So in India, there's a last name N-A-I-D-U or N-A-Y-D-U. So yeah. is that the same last name? Because I know your your father is Indian and, uh, and mom is Chinese. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question because I always get asked this. There's a lot of people, especially in Southern Africa, with the surname ending with a U instead of double O. But there's also quite a lot of people in Southern Africa, well, where I'm from in Zimbabwe with a double O. So I don't know where it come from. It comes from and why, why the spelling is different, but it seems to be like a very common thing. I also want to do a similar thing when I have kids, like come up with a name, a last name that like nobody can figure out where that person is from because I am from like a particular state in India called Kerala and my wife is from Delhi. And if we keep either one of our last names, then the anyone can, in India at least, can figure out where that person is from. So that was yeah. my thought. I, I mean, I have that with my first name as well because it seems to translate across to a lot of different cultures and languages as well. So everybody's like, oh, are you from here? Or did you know your name means this in this language as well? So it's kind of nice being, I guess, not able to be described. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, growing up, what were your interests? Uh, I understand that you, you, you like exercising a lot of uh, physical activities. Beyond that, uh, what were your other interests? Yeah, I mean... You know, growing up, actually, I really wasn't into exercising, <laughs> doing that much sport. I mean, I did it because, you know, my parents enrolled me in different things. And obviously, you have school and all that kind of stuff. But I only really started loving it and enjoying it and finding, you know, physical hobbies, I guess, that I really loved probably in the past three or four years. But I mean, growing up, I was always trying new things, a lot of dance, <laughs> a lot of dance. I think that's difficult for, for many young girls. I did. I tried all kinds of martial arts and I was very lucky in growing up in Zimbabwe in that my parents wanted me to try as many different things as possible. But yeah, it was very, very, very diverse. And I don't think I stuck with any one thing in particular until, you know, now later on being an adult <laughs> really yeah yeah uh, you've mentioned you started with exercising seriously and loving it like three four years back what, what was the reason for that I, I'm very curious because generally people are not interested in keeping themselves healthy yeah. yeah so I mean I think it's a combination of things like I needed something this was around the same time that it was just before I was transitioning to accelerating Asia and so First of all, you know, living in Singapore, gyms are quite expensive. <laughs> so I was never really in the position where I was like, oh, I could afford a, a nice gym membership or anything like that until I started my job with Telstra at the time. And then I think the second thing is 
I found an activity that I really enjoyed. And so at the time I was starting with a, a gym called Ritual and basically they have these high intensity workouts, it goes for, you know, 20 minutes and I love high intensity workouts. So it just, it was like a perfect fit. It was super close to the office. I could just pop in. The trainers were really nice. And they kind of got my confidence up in terms of, you know, being comfortable with the different movements and weights and all of that kind of stuff. And then after that was when I started to really, you know, when your confidence is up is when you're starting to try new things and, yeah. you know, experiment. And so a lot of people had started to recommend CrossFit to me at the time. And I always had this idea of CrossFit being like, I don't know. You always see the videos, like people smashing the weights down, this like real bro culture <laughs> type yeah. thing. And so I was really, really nervous about trying it. But I found this gym in Singapore, which is also a social enterprise. And so they had a lot of classes for people with different types of abilities, like physical abilities. They had seniors classes. So there's like people in their 60s and 70s doing CrossFit, some lifting heavier weights than <laughs> I guess most people ever could. And I kind of saw that as a really interesting place to go check out because, you know, if all of these different types of people were finding some kind of enjoyment that, you know, maybe this would be a really good culture. And that's how I ended up getting started in, in CrossFit in particular. That particular gym as well also offered aerial classes. And I remember just going and being like, oh, well, let me just try it. I think this, this is the thing that comes with confidence that I mentioned before is that once you start feeling more confident about yourself, you start being open to just trying new things, failing, looking like yeah. a complete fool <laughs> in front of people. And I would definitely say like exercising and doing these kind of things physically has made me much more comfortable with my body and also you know the ability to just look dumb and stupid you know because oh well <laughs> what have you got to lose but I think the height of that would probably be you know moving over to jiu-jitsu and muay thai which I started and that you know there's those kind of sports there's no room for ego there's no room for being very precious about like what you look like if your hair looks good or anything like that because it's just, you know, it's just about the sport. It's a lot of mental challenges as well as physical challenges and really kind of being comfortable that, you know, your body is different from someone else's and using that, your strengths and their weaknesses and sometimes your weaknesses to get somewhere. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is also another thing that you can do if you want to push your boundaries mentally, physically, in every way, try to become a founder. So would you suggest like anyone just try building a business or becoming a founder at least uh, once in their career? Look, I think it really depends because being a founder is not for everyone. And I think that's okay. Like, I think there's a lot of hype around being an entrepreneur and, you know, starting businesses and all that kind of stuff. But you know, the reality is that not everyone wants to do that <laughs> and not everyone should. Like, you know, everybody has different priorities in their life and different things that they're optimizing for. And, you know, being a founder or being an entrepreneur is one track and there are pros and cons with that. It's a certain lifestyle. 
I think it is useful in terms of pushing yourself way, way out of your comfort zone and also just really understanding what is involved with running a business. Because I think if you have an appreciation for that, then when you go into your your job, even if it doesn't work out as a founder, you can kind of empathize with, you know, maybe what the founder of your business is going through at that particular time and have a better understanding for all the different moving pieces of a, of running a business. But again, I don't think you necessarily need to be a founder in order to get that appreciation. So yes and no, but I really don't think everybody should be a founder or an entrepreneur. <laughs> like it's just like I think it's unrealistic for us to expect that. Yeah, look, but your website says, you know, it is the greatest catalyst for change, <laughs> entrepreneurs. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's what we believe as a, a VC fund. It doesn't mean that you can't create change in different ways. It's just where we're investing our money in order to try and create change, right? And yeah. part of the reason for that is because our theory anyway is that entrepreneurs are out there just trying to solve a problem that's the whole that's the whole basis behind starting a business right you found a problem that you're going to be solving and entrepreneurs are often very creative <laughs> in their problem solving ways right they're not limited by structure or infrastructure in the case of you know many emerging markets that we work in as well they simply found a problem and they're like kind of trying to figure figure out how to make it work and it's that kind of problem-solving mentality that we think can help create a lot of change, especially in emerging markets where, you know, maybe solutions coming from the West don't make sense. Like you need to have someone local being there on the ground, understanding the situation and then, you know, aha, uh -huh, I know what I'm going to do and <laughs> figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I've heard you mention this in a, in a different podcast, like one way to look at it is like, you know, uh, if you're comfortable with the downsides of just trying this out or try, trying to build a business, then you can do whatever you want. You can just try, even if you fail, go do something else later. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that, um, that, that was I a good, that's good with, approach. with anything. Yeah. yeah. I think that's with anything you want to do. And this is actually something my husband said to me when I first left my, my safe job in Australia to moved to Singapore for an internship, which was practically unpaid. And many people would not do that, right? You wouldn't leave a job to go for an internship, first of all. Many people wouldn't move countries as well to, to do that. And many people wouldn't move to a country like Singapore, which is arguably quite expensive, expensive. in order to go <laughs> and do something like that. But there are so many ways that you can apply this logic because, you know, it really impacts every kind of calculated risk that you want to take in your life. And that is, you know, if you, if you are comfortable with the worst case scenario and, you know, in that case, my worst case scenario is I chew through all my savings. I don't end up getting a job in Singapore. Then I end up back in Australia in a job that I don't like because I'm just going to have to find something to earn some money and probably living with my parents. And that's not really a bad worst case scenario. You know, like there are so many other possible worst case scenarios for, for other people. So why wouldn't I be able to just take that risk? If I'm comfortable with it, 
I like my parents. I'm okay doing like a waitressing job or whatever just to get by so I can take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now let's talk about the accelerating issue. And I understand that you're accelerator, a fund, venture fund, and a consulting business. So could you explain? Yeah. So we, yeah, exactly. We essentially have three parts to what we do. Most people know us really well for our flagship accelerator program. And so that we work with pre-series A companies from around the region. So Southeast Asia and South Asia primarily. We run a three-month program for them and we run that twice a year. Typically, the founders that we work with have traction. They've got revenue and users as well. And they've probably raised a little bit of money in their home country and started to talk to institutional investors about fundraising. Very likely, they've probably been turned away because they're a little bit too early for them. And that's kind of our sweet spot. So our program is not like your typical incubator or accelerator that you generally find around the region because many of those are quite early stage. We're what I'm going to say the traditional and in inverted commas accelerator program in that we're there to accelerate. And so the program itself is very much curated to the companies that are coming in, their specific needs and their specific goals. So while we do have, you know, some set things that we go through in the program that we know founders in general need, a lot of it is based on what they're looking for and things that come up during the couple of months that we're working with them. So that's the accelerator program. The second part that that is tied very much to that is the fund. So we've got two flagship funds um, and we have the fund basically just invests in the companies that are going through the program. So it's pretty straightforward. The fund is just there along for the yeah, ride and a- kind of benefits from the, from the accelerator. So we invest up to 250K and we typically do it through a safe note. So it's quick, easy and painless, hopefully for both sides, especially with the quantity of investment that we're doing per year. It's quite a lot. And then the final piece you mentioned is the consulting one. So we work with multinationals, development organizations, governments, universities as well, and how they engage with the startup ecosystem. Basically, what that means is we run programs. And so they could be, you know, fully virtual programs for early stage entrepreneurs. They could be internship programs where students come and intern with startups for a couple of months or land and expand. So, you know, where startups are coming from one country and would like to expand into the region. It's Kind of, so we have three, the three parts to what we do, um, as Craig has been calling it, which I think is actually really smart, is our three-legged stool, right? <laughs> you, you couldn't, each part has its own part to play and builds the ecosystem in a unique way, but they're all completely complementary with each other. And if one was to go away, you know, the stool wouldn't balance as well. And that's part of, you know, us being an independent program is making sure an independent accelerator and independent business is that we have diversification in terms of revenue because, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of different things like investing in startups is difficult. Yeah. So what is your revenue and like, how do you meet your operating expenses? I'm I'm assuming it's from the consulting bit of things. Also one other thing. So is that the way you operate similar to how, let's say, plug and play does? Yeah. So I think, Probably 
similar with some slight differences. So we knew when we first started that we wanted to be completely independent, meaning that we didn't want to be corporate backed. We didn't want to be government backed. We didn't want to fundraise. We wanted to bootstrap and keep things as independent as possible. And so part of doing that is making sure you're financially sustainable, right? Now with an accelerator program, it is incredibly difficult to charge startups because startups just can't pay in general. So typically what happens is if they do pay, it's a discounted cash fee. And then usually accelerators will take equity, like a program fee. The problem with program fees is that you don't realize them until you know eight maybe 10 you know 15 years down the track and you still in that meantime need to be operating your accelerator program the second part is the fund so the funds typically would take management fees but when we first started our fund was really really small and part of the reason for that was we wanted to test the concept first before we went out to raise a bigger fund and so taking management fees off a really small fund is not yeah, possible. You yeah, you, you <laughs> exactly. can't live <laughs> it. Exactly. And then waiting for exits from the fund in order to, you know, fund your operations, again, you know, oh, is a really long-term game. So we knew we needed something else. And that's essentially where the consulting arm came from. And so basically we get paid by clients to run programs. And that drives short-term revenue in order to sustain the operations of the accelerator program and the fund. And then gradually, as you know, we start to get exits, we're able to charge more in terms of a cash fee, the three legs of the stool start to balance out. And so now that we're raising our second fund, we're looking at launching our third fund, then management fees and things like that start to make sense as well. So that's what I mean in terms of starting to have more diversification, but the plan was to try and keep as independent as possible. Yeah. And uh, may I ask your reasoning why you don't want to be backed by a particular company or government? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I'll caveat that by saying, like, uh, when we first started, we had a lot of people in the ecosystem reaching out to us saying, you know, like, how can we support you? This is like really important for the ecosystem because of the particular stage that we're working at. And one of those partners was at the Singapore government through Enterprise Singapore. And so when we first started, we managed to get a grant from the Singapore government through their SG Accelerator program. And part of the, I guess, conditions or the goals of that was that by a certain period of time, we would be financially independent. And so the grant was essentially our seed funding (laughs) in order to kick us off. And we're incredibly grateful to the Singapore government because we managed to do that and we managed to become financially sustainable with their help. And their whole idea was that they wanted independent programs, you know, to be operating and ones that don't you know, just rely, I guess, on taxpayer money for like a long period of time. So that's, that's one. So I will say we are like partly backed by, but the goal was always for us to be completely independent and not reliant on it. The reason for us wanting to be independent is because if you look around the region, most accelerators or, you know, incubators or venture builders or whatever are backed by government or corporate. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what you have to keep in mind is that if you're a founder going through these programs, it means that they obviously have a vested interest, right? 
you yeah. are going through this program because you're trying to connect with this company or you know the the government have has specific objectives whereas we wanted to be founder first in our approach and that if you know if our startups succeed we succeed and kind of be aligned from day one so that that was really the reason for trying to be independent yeah this this 200 250k you mentioned is that for all the startups who are part of the accelerator program or this is something that you do after the program from yeah so I didn't really all that, yeah all of the startups that go through the program get an upfront check of 100k and then after the program we invest more up to our, up to 250k 50k okay okay yeah. and you mentioned this end of before that you operate in a space where a startup is not really at mvp stage and not really a product market fit why did you choose that space yeah good question so we call it the missing middle and basically what you'll find in the ecosystem is that there is a lot of early stage ecosystem support you know governments are seeding programs development organizations there's a lot of like entrepreneurial talent development programs venture builders incubators and then on the other end of the spectrum you would have definitely seen in the news there's a lot of money moving into southeast asia and south asia as a region big institutional funds um are coming into the region now the challenge is a startup that graduates from an early stage program is never going to be a good fit for someone looking to deploy you know <laughs> even 2 million dollar checks into these companies they just can't accept that kind of money and so that's kind of the gap that we wanted to fill is connecting all of these because it's it's kind of a shame right you you're developing all of these entrepreneurs these startups and there's really in the grand scheme of things not much they need to do in order to prepare themselves for institutional investment and so that that's kind of what we focus on I mean the second reason as well is from a an investment perspective it's essentially a de-risked investment right because you're taking <laughs> you know startups that have technically already survived a certain stage right and then hopefully setting them up for success by connecting them with larger institutional investors and really accelerating their journey as well so there's kind of a twofold thing there yeah is is there anyone else operating in this space you know uh, uh, iterative uh, i would argue is like the you know, the stage before you right? yeah so oh. i think they're probably just before us or maybe a similar stage to us they started slightly after us though so yeah. i think there's plenty of room in the ecosystem for people to come in and to be honest craig and i were you know saying we're quite surprised that we've been able to operate in this space for such a long time without much competition, competition. <laughs> yeah i i think that is everything to do with you know like we you mentioned you, you can't if you don't have the something else to cover your operating expense then you can't really survive like uh, there were a lot of accelerators in back in 2014 and stuff right which all got shut down yeah yeah i mean it is it's such a difficult business model and i mean that's also why you know when we spoke about being independent one of the other reasons there is that if you're backed by a corporate or you're backed by a government priorities change and sometimes yeah. you're not part of that priority anymore yeah. and all that work that you've done is just is gone yeah 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 even for me you know i have long term ambitions to be a vc <laughs> so the way i'm thinking is i'm hoping that this becomes like a a profitable media business maybe not now maybe 
three, four mm-hmm. years down the line. And that can really fund me. And then, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, even when you, and then when you're starting out, you want to test out with a small fund and you can't really live off that. <laughs> so then, yeah. Yeah. You have that freedom to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also thought process. <laughs> investing, investing off your balance sheet, right? If you are yeah. a profitable media company, it kind of makes more sense than having to go down all this regulatory stuff, get licenses, have to deal with outside investors, LPs, right, <laughs> for your fund, rather than you know remaining in control. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a while. What is the one unique insight about VC that you can share with me? Yeah. One unique insight, I think, or something that I've learned is that I'm probably the most anti-VC VC. And <laughs> I think that most startups should not be fundraising and most startups should not be fundraising from VCs. Like of the ones that are fundraising, they probably shouldn't be fundraising from VCs. Yeah, it's just, you know, something that I've kind of realized over and over again is that the whole ecosystem is overhyped. The whole fundraising thing is overhyped. A lot of people think that their value as a business and as an individual comes from being able to raise funds from, you know, some investor. Yeah. (laughs) And that's absolutely not the case, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. I think I think most businesses should not raise funds from VCs. And no, I only managed to raise once for one of my startups in the past. <laughs> and I had a similar thought. I never want to raise from a VC. Because yeah. <laughs> you don't realize the kind of expectation that comes along with, you know, raising a VC uh, round. Yeah, definitely. I think there are so many things people need to consider before they go out and fundraise. Like, One is like, well, first of all, do I even need the money? And I would say nine times out of 10, when you question a founder about what they're going to be doing with it, there are other ways for them to be experimenting without raising money. And in a lot of cases, it's kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say like, it is a lot of work to fundraise, but it is kind of a lazy way of doing things because you think, oh, if I get money, then my problem will be solved. But actually... That's not the case, right? All you're doing is growing your problem, <laughs> really, because now you're just throwing money money at, at it as, as part of the solution. So that's kind of the first thing. But then there's also considerations like lifestyle. You know, if you're running a venture-backed business, you're expected to deliver a certain, you know, percentage of returns to your investors, which means that you can no longer just, you know, I don't know, have your flexible time or kind of all the benefits of being a founder, right? Is being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. You can't do that anymore. You, you have external people you need to report. Yeah. So I I don't, I don't think a lot of people think (laughs) about that. Unless you are uh, SBF. (laughs) You do not have Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I really don't think most people should be fundraising. (laughs) Yeah, but I would argue that in terms of impact, if you look at a lot of these companies that have really transformed humanity, they're all venture-backed, right? I mention Genentech all the time in this podcast, you know, the company that invented artificial insulin. That came off like a, like the founder is the first entrepreneur in residence in history. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that. So why would you say that this is not the best way to make an impact as in like a venture-backed? A startup 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think it could be in theory, it could be the best way to create impact because in theory, right, you found a business which is financially sustainable. It's growing really quickly. If it's VC-backed, it's probably technology-backed as well, which means it's highly scalable and very efficient. And then if, you, if you're talking about impact and impact that is embedded into the business model, in theory, as this business is scaling, so is the impact. And so I think that is where like the optimistic side of me is like, this makes so much sense, right? <laughs> like if you can find these kind of businesses, you can back them. Like you find really good founders as well that are moral, ethical, you know, then obviously the business is going to change as they grow. But if you find someone who's like North Star is aligned in a certain way, then um, this could have amazing impact for humanity. But I also think that there are certain problems, one, that should not be solved by business, right? So there's, there's that. So business isn't going to be the only method of, of solving big hum humanitarian issues. And then the other thing is that when you have to report to third parties, external investors who are not necessarily aligned with you on your mission, then... You know, this early stage founder that we've invested in that, you know, could have had all of the potential to create a massive impact on humanity could end up not being that later down the track, right? Because the business, yeah. the business model is going to change. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm at odds with it. I'm still like going back and forth between, you know, what is, what is the most effective way to create impact at scale? Yeah, I mean, if you were to take example, Google, the impact that uh, something like Google has, but, but the reality is world revolves around money. So then <laughs> it's just bottle matters. And yeah, I, yeah. I mentioned, this is something that I always remember. One of the things that Michael always tells me from Cocoon Capital <laughs> is that in the minute you raise external capital, you lose the control of your business. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think and then, even a lot of founders realize that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's also this book called Small Giants and uh, it basically talks about like how SMEs arguably have had the most impact on humanity <laughs> than, you know, any type, other type of business model. And if, if you think about it, it's kind of true because they're privately owned businesses, you maintain control. And I think a lot of people think that, oh, you know, especially when we're interviewing founders, you know, during the application process. And, you know, sometimes there'll be a comment usually from me, which is like, why don't you guys just stay as an SME? Like, why don't, why do you want to be a startup, you know? And then it's, they're kind of defensive about it, thinking that it's a bad thing being an SME. Like the world, <laughs> majority of businesses are SMEs, right? And they create amazing impact. They have so many jobs, like arguably, more impact as an SME than any startup would ever have. And basically that, that is what, you know, something that Small Giants touches on, which is that, you know, there are all these businesses throughout history that have created impact in a lot of different ways because they've remained private. That's an interesting point. And uh, yeah, I really want to read that book. 
So the, the, the one surprising company that has a huge impact, but then we don't realize that I know of is like Automatic, uh, which is the the parent company of uh, WordPress. They are venture funded, <laughs> but yeah, the, the I, I think forty percent of all the internet websites uh, run on WordPress. It's incredible, right? <laughs> and and not many people yeah. talk about them as as if like it's like a uh, Google, Microsoft, or like Facebook or Apple. Yeah, yeah. You can you can create. Yeah, no, definitely. You definitely can. And there's so many different like niche industries and things like that where I think you can have a massive impact on. So yeah, like I guess the point is that, you know, venture-backed businesses have a lot of hype behind them, but maybe are not the most effective <laughs> form of model. Yeah, right. Could be, yeah. but maybe not. And one last thing that I wanted to ask you before we end this was like the the a particular country in the area that you operate in Southeast South Asia and Southeast Asia that you are most bullish on. Yeah, so I think anybody who just takes a really quick look at our website will probably be able to guess for themselves which country I'm going to be talking about, and that would be Bangladesh. We. As well, uh, you would say actually, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we actually kind of came across Bangladesh as a market when Craig and I were working for Telstra and running the Murudi Accelerator program. And I, at the time, I was a, a global shaper, and it's basically a community with the World Economic Forum. And one of the really awesome things about being a global shaper is that it's so hyper connected. So. When people come in, you know, come into your city, they'll always reach out and you can meet with a lot of different interesting people. And so a global shaper from Bangladesh reached out to me and he was like, yeah, let's just catch up. And we had a coffee and I was telling him what we did. And he was like, you know, my, um, I think girlfriend at the time. Yeah. I think now they're married. <laughs> it was girlfriend at the time. She runs this company called Shop Up. And, you know, they work with micro entrepreneurs and they're basically a virtual shop front. Um, I was like, it sounds really cool. You know, they should totally apply for our program and applications closed that night. And they actually got their application in that night, went through the entire application process. And that ended up being our first ever investment into a company from Bangladesh. Fast forward, what, like five years, they've now raised the biggest series C round in the country's history. They employ hundreds of people. The impact is incredible. You know, if we're talking about startups that have impact embedded into the business model. And so that investment really got us excited about the potential of Bangladesh in terms of the types of businesses there, entrepreneurs there, what it's like to work in that market as well. And as soon as, you know, we made that investment, obviously, ShopUp as a company did really well. And they also were promoting us in country as well, kind of saying, you know, this is the program that we went through. And so when I say we're big in Bangladesh and people laugh, but it's actually kind of a thing where we love Bangladesh and Bangladeshi companies tend to come to us as well, which is really awesome. To your question about why, I think there's a lot of macroeconomic trends there, which are really exciting for us. So one is it's a big population. It's a big country, yeah. right? So, and it's a growing population, a lot of people coming into middle class as well. So, so there's, there's that side to it. 
it's also a very young country and a very there's a lot of energy. <laughs> the population is very young. And so, yes, you can talk about all those macroeconomic trends, which make it look interesting on paper. But I think what makes it really interesting for us is when you actually go to the country and you start talking to the entrepreneurs and working with the entrepreneurs, you realize that there is such a big gap in terms of ecosystem support there that, you know, for an external or international investor like Accelerating Asia to go in, we have a really good opportunity to opportunity. pick up some great companies there. Yeah, look um, where other people are not looking, no? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think the the other thing there is in terms of because it's such an overlooked country, it means that a lot of institutional investors and capital are a bit risk averse about, you know, investing in there, which yeah. means that, you know, potentially for us, exit opportunities could be limited because, you know, they're a bit nervous about investing in that place. But when you look at the types of businesses that are there and the types of problems that are being solved, and because, you know, it is so underinvested, you essentially get a discount on your investment compared to making an investment into a country like Indonesia or Singapore, where you know, you could be investing in practically an idea, you know, for a, a million bucks, right? <laughs> Compared to something in Bangladesh, which is like real tangible. They've got hundreds of employees, at, you know, already like there's already a lot of scale there and growth potential. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the thought process there. I agree. I mean, I think it's one of the last remaining opportunity in the, in the whole geography of South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, yeah. 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 And I, I think when it comes to macro trends, one thing that could be like bad for Bangladesh is like uh, they would have a huge impact when it comes to climate change in the coming mm -hmm. decades. I could maybe that, that, that could also be an opportunity uh, for the country to come up with yep. solutions. Yeah, I mean, I think you could kind of like draw a parallel with COVID, right? It's massive challenge for everybody around the world. But we saw entrepreneurs creating solutions like left right and center right it was yeah. probably the best time to be an entrepreneur because you know you could do a lot of different things and people weren't expecting things as well and so i think wherever there is there are challenges there are always opportunities and i think yeah i mean bangladesh is going to be massively affected by climate change as are many other you know countries in this region philippines for example indonesia right so yeah i think there would be a lot of opportunities to invest in solutions. Yeah, this has been great, Amrad. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was really helpful. And no, I really appreciate the opportunity.